Well, we're going to start off in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. And we're going to be looking at various verses tonight, different passages, primarily in Luke and John. Because I'm so proud of you guys coming out on that Thursday, to be honest. I was thinking, okay, more than likely people are getting ready for Good Friday service. And so, you know, you're planning on being here Friday. Some of you ladies were here on Tuesday. If you could raise your hand. Those of you who are here on Tuesday, man, you guys are amazing, man. Tuesday, Thursday, um, Friday, and then uh, Sunday. But you know what? I commend you, and my prayer is that God would encourage you tonight. Because I think in one sense, tonight's study can be used by the Lord to really even make that Good Friday service even more effective as we kind of find out what happened that Thursday. And you guys know Thursday morning, basically what happened was Jesus uh, sent his disciples out to go find a, a room where they could have the Passover. They asked him, he sent them. And so most of us would probably frown on that because most of you guys here, if you're going to have a special dinner, how many of you guys need reservations like a month in advance, huh? But Jesus, you know, of course, he knows everything, and he's a spontaneous, he's a man of faith, he knew exactly what he was going to do. But that morning, that Thursday morning, he sent the guys out to go find a room, it would be an upper room, where they would have the Passover. And so that's uh, how Thursday started, and then they had the Passover dinner, and the Lord just taught him a ton of things. It was, in one sense, kind of like his last day of ministering to them before he was arrested and then crucified, and we know he rose the third day, right? And then we also know that after Jesus rose, there was 40 days of him appearing. And so, you know, I thought about this. I'm like, well, Lord, during the 40 days, um, you know, you were probably talking to them. You were probably sharing things with them. It's true, but we don't know how, like, consistent it was. You know how he would come and go. We kind of saw that with his resurrected body. So even though we know he would share with them after his resurrection and there were times of teaching and there were times like that, this right here in one sense was like his final constant time of ministering to them before he died. And so there's a lot here. You guys go through it. There's probably a thousand things to glean, a hundred things to learn. And so my encouragement to you is as as we're going to go through the scriptures tonight um, maybe you can uh, go home today, tomorrow, whatever, and kind of go through them yourself. We see, I'm going to give you guys 10 things. You might not be able to write them all down because they're long, but I'm going to give you like 10 things, uh, 10 events that we highlight in this last uh, Maundy Thursday by, before Jesus was crucified. And so number one, Jesus asked his disciples to prepare for the Passover meal. And that's in Matthew 26, 17 through 19. It's also in Mark 14, 12 through 16. So just in case you're wondering, if you're reading the Gospels, Matthew, um, what you find is Matthew 26, pretty much the last half of that chapter is Thursday. Mark 14, the last half of that chapter is Thursday. Um, We see Luke chapter 22, probably 80% of that chapter is Thursday. But then when we get to John chapter 13, we're going to see, man, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, five chapters were dedicated to that Thursday. And so first thing we see here in Luke chapter 22, notice in verse 7, it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, 
when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. And so they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. And in those days, uh, that would be something that would stand out because usually the ladies were the ones carrying the pitcher of water. But here we see it was a guy. And so they would see this guy, he would stand out. Imagine, it's kind of weird, huh? And then you'd follow him. And then it says, and then you shall say to the master, you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There, make ready. And so they went and found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. Now, when you look at the Jewish calendar, you have seven feast days. And so um, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, however, they go hand in hand. And for us, again, there's so many things that we can glean from this. Uh, Just like I shared even on the Palm Sunday message, how the Lord knows the future. How when we have a relationship with God, he can share things with us. Hey, when you go over there, you know, and he'll prepare us, he'll put words in our mouth, he'll open doors, I mean, you name it. Uh, There's so many things that we learn. But one of the most important things that we have to make sure that we don't miss out on is just the whole Passover period. How many of you have gone to a Seder dinner? I'm just curious, like a Passover dinner. Okay, you guys, we should do that next year. Somebody, uh, I'll give you, I'll delegate it to you and you can take care of it for us, all right? It's a blessing to see the way the Passover, the Seder dinner is all symbolic of Jesus. Now, when you look at the Passover, uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 13, it gives us really the, the heart of it in which God said, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. God said this, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. It's not random. It's not just a coincidence. Jesus would die in this holiday, this holy day, as the Passover lamb. Now, when you go back to the book of Exodus, you'll find that the Lord had redeemed his people out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. Uh, They had gone to Egypt. Initially, Joseph took care of them. They lived in the land of Goshen, and everything was great. But eventually what happened, while the Jews were in, in Egypt, that there arose a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. He didn't know the history of the Jews. And next thing you know, he said, man, these people are multiplying so much that we're going to have to put them into slaves. We're going to have them serve us. And then eventually it came to the point where you know, they wanted to kill the baby boys that were born. It was just a terrible place for them. And, and basically, when you read the Bible, Egypt is a typology of the world. Okay, that was us before we were Christians. And so how did God get them out of Egypt? How did God get us out of the world? How did God, in one sense, the ultimate question is, how did God save us? And the answer is the Passover. What they would do on the final plague, when you read that story there in the book of Exodus, is they would kill the lamb, they would take the blood, they would put it on the doorpost on the lintel, and when the angel of death came to that house and checked out all the houses in Egypt, if there was blood on your door, then the angel of death would pass over. 
Hence, we have this whole message of Passover. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, and I know most of you have, if not all of you, then what we find is that we have this life, the angel of death, so to speak. When he looks at us, we have the blood, we have you know, this forgiveness, we have this redemption of Jesus. He, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, is our Passover lamb. And so, just in the very get-go, looking at these things, we're going to see there's so many uh, prophecies, there's so many uh, shadows uh, of the substance as far as who Jesus is and how it all begins. And so, first thing, Jesus asks his disciples to prepare for the Passover meal. They go and they get everything set up. Second thing is Jesus begins the meal. And notice what we read in Luke 22, beginning in verse 14. It says, when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then this is an in chronological order. You got to jump down to verse 24. It says in verse 24, same chapter, Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or the one who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. And you guys are going to see this like on the last day, uh, so to speak, how the Lord emphasizes the importance of having that servant's heart. And so they're there, they're arguing who's the greatest. Imagine that, how crazy, huh? While the Lord, the God of the universe is in the process of laying down his life. And so we read in verse 28, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials and I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Here we see Jesus just kind of like begins the meal. You know, when you look at this right here, verse 15 kind of stood out to me Because notice again what he says in verse 15, Luke 22, then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You know, we're going to see basically at the end of Thursday, beginning of Fridays, the wee hours of the morning, Jesus gets arrested. And in one sense, you know, um, because of the fact that, you know, he laid down his divine privileges. Um, He was in their hands. They did with him what they wanted to. They would have three mockery trials. Eventually, they scourged him, and they led him away to be crucified. In one sense, it was really nothing that he was doing. He was basically just yielding himself to them. But here, we see that he's going to the cross. Just like the Bible says, it says that he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. You know, imagine if you knew that if you went to that city that they would put you to death. Imagine that. Most of us would go the other way. But Jesus here, it's amazing how he says, with fervent desire, 
I have desired to eat this Passover meal with you. Now, it's an interesting thing when you look at it in the Greek. The, the Greek word is epithumeo, and it means to fix the desire upon. It means to intensely long for. Even in some cases, the Greek word is translated to lust after. And, and basically, this word right here is not just said once, it's repeated. And in those days, that would mean it was emphasized. And so he was like, it's my desire upon desire to eat this Passover meal with you, this Passover meal that would signify his death. And, and, and you look at that and you might wonder, well, why did he want this dinner so passionately? And the answer is, the nearer the hour of suffering and death came for Jesus, the more he longed for it to come in order that the great work might be done and redemption be actually wrought. You know, something like Henry was saying, you know, when it comes to the cross of Christ, man, let me tell you something. We have no idea what the suffering was like. He bore the sins of the world. He was punched in the face by the devil. I mean, he suffered the wrath of God. He absorbed it all for us. You know, we have a hard time turning the other cheek. We have a hard time, you know, holding it together when someone insults us. But man, the way that they mocked him. But, but here Jesus is saying, as I, as I go that way, as I'm ready to lay down my life, this is something that I long for. And it was like the closer he got to it, he was kind of like saying, the more that I want it. You know, I was reading about how on death row, and I know it's different. Death row is much different because those guys who are on death row deserve to die. But you know how it is, huh? On death row, they get to ask for their last meal, huh? Something about that last meal, and that we were reading, I was reading with my wife, different uh, meals that they asked for, and um, in one sense, this was Jesus' last meal. And you guys know, if you were to ask, if you knew you were to die one day, okay, these are the people that I want there, and this is the food that I want. You know, and here the Lord would have his apostles there, and he would have this, this lamb, he would have this dinner Everything, the bitter herbs, everything was symbolic. They were all shadows of the fact that he was about to die. And he wanted it. He wanted it. You know, when I was thinking about that, I got, just got so convicted because I know that we are called as Christians to follow him and take up our cross and deny ourselves. But we hate it. We don't like it. We don't look forward to it. But he clung to his cross and he looked forward with it to it with such a, an inspirational way. David Guzik said, this was a passionate moment for Jesus. It wasn't so much that he was saying goodbye to his disciples as much as now he arrived at the central reason why he came to man, to institute a new covenant with men based on his own sacrifice. This is not the beginning of the end. It is the beginning of the beginning. And he would enter this new covenant, this cup symbolic of his blood. It would start a new covenant. And it would be the covenant of what? Of grace. The covenant of grace. How many of you guys are happy that it's a covenant of grace? I know I am, man. I think about it all the time. Because under the Old Testament and the laws and the rules and the regulations, man, that would be tough. It would be really tough. You try to earn you know, your way in, in many ways, and you're under the law, you're under the obligation. But you guys, you know, I mean, we encourage you to come to church, but it doesn't save you. We encourage you to pray, but it doesn't necessarily save you. We encourage you to read your Bible. 
It doesn't necessarily save you. We encourage you to do good works. We encourage you to behave, all that kind of stuff. But none of that saves you. None of that you know, puts you in favor with God. What does is your simple faith in him. I trust you, Lord. I know who I am. I'm a sinner, and I still blow it every single day. But Lord, um, I know what you did on that cross, and I trust you as my righteousness. And in this, Jesus was so excited. He was so passionate in that he would now establish a new covenant with them. And so it's starting now. We haven't yet got to communion, but it's beginning. And so he says, with fervent desire, I've desired to eat this Passover dinner with you. So the next thing we see Jesus did is over in John chapter 13. And so I was wondering if you could turn your Bibles there. And if you want like a chronological handout of the whole night, I brought some copies. Uh, Just let me know. And um, you can kind of see just the whole flow of, of the day and the evening. But the third thing is Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And we read this in verse 1 of John 13. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. Notice this. He loved them to the end. And supper being ended, and the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, he rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And what we find right here, this is a huge part of that night. Um, you're going to see the Passover dinner had, had four different um, aspects, like you could say parts to it. And so they're in the middle of the dinner. You know, when you go to dinner, you might have an appetizer, you might have an entree, you might have or a salad, or then an entree, and then you might have dessert, whatever. It's kind of like that. In the middle of the meal, Jesus noticed, and he was kind of giving them time, nobody has washed anyone's feet. Now, you may think that that's kind of like a side issue, but that this is not the way it would usually go down. Usually when you go in those days that the roads were dirty, you had your sandals. I mean, it was, there was a lot of uh, dirty stuff on the road. You, you can use your imagination, right? And in those days when they were at the table, they were reclining. So it wasn't like their feet were underneath the table. You couldn't see it. I mean, you could see everybody's stinky feet or whatever, everybody's toe jam right there, you know, and you're, and you're, you're trying to eat, right? And I know Jesus is waiting. I know sometimes you do this with your kids. You're waiting. I wonder if they're going to, you know, help out here. I wonder if they're going to take out the trash, or I wonder if they're going to, you know, wash the dishes or whatever it might be. And, and, and no, one, no one volunteered. And so what Jesus does, this is in the middle of the meal, as he gets up, he girds his waist, and God washes their feet. And, and this, again, as you're going through and you're, like, you're looking at the last day before he gets arrested and, and everything, I mean, just the example that he gives to us. You know, no, I was reading about this, and there was this one guy, he's a historian, he said, nowhere in history... Do you ever find in these cultures of such a thing? 
it was always the lowest one on the totem pole. It was always the slave, the, the, the one with the least you know, position. That was their responsibility. Everyone knew it. But we read earlier the heart of the disciples, the heart of the apostles, how they were just, well, who's the greatest? And, and here we see the Lord in, you know, prove the fact that he's the greatest and the fact that he would then wash their feet. Imagine how that must have felt. Have you ever had anyone wash your feet? I'm just curious. It's, it's, a, it's a humbling thing, you know, um, to do it in one sense, but in another sense, it's a beautiful thing. You know, I know that some of you guys did it when you went to Cambodia, and I remember um, just talking to everybody after they had washed the feet of these girls who had come out of, you know, different crazy backgrounds of drugs and sexual slavery, stuff like that. And just the high, it was a highlight of the missions trip to wash feet. Now for us nowadays, we don't do that normally. I think the equivalent nowadays would probably be scrubbing toilets, maybe emptying the trash. Who does that? So what we find right here, the, the way that John paints it is so cool. The way that he says basically that everything was set. Look at verse 2. The devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. I mean, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, it was already his. He was already going to be there at the top spot. You know, Judas had, was, was ready to betray him. I mean, the Lord washed Judas' feet. Even though he was God, even though that was a, like a done deal, you know, he gives us the example and there's a couple of things about this that is so cool. Um, one of the aspects of it is just the whole aspect of being a servant. You know, prayerfully, it, we all have that heart. Prayerfully, we know that that was one of the most important messages that the Lord ever shared is that we would have a servant's heart, you know. But then secondly, the whole aspect of forgiveness. Because if you go through John chapter 13, what you find is that Jesus was, Jesus was washing everybody's feet and then when he came to Peter, do you guys remember what Peter said? Peter said, not so, Lord. You're never going to wash my feet, right? And then the Lord said, okay, Peter, well, if you don't let me wash your feet, then I have no part with you. And then Peter said, okay, Lord, then don't just wash my feet. Give, wash my whole body, you know, give me a shower. You know, Peter was just, he was definitely different, right? And, um, and the Lord said, you don't need me to wash your whole body. You're clean already. You just need me to wash your feet, and what we find what the Lord is teaching us there is that when you become a believer, when you become a Christian, from a positional standpoint, you're clean, right? You're clean. God looks at you from a positional standpoint. He sees no sin. We have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, right? So he said, you don't even wash your whole body. You're already clean. But he says, your feet. That's what I need to wash. And what we find, the symbolism is that as we go through life, as we walk through planet Earth in this fallen place, we sin. You know, we get dirty. We fail. And the Lord is willing to wash our feet. The Lord is willing to forgive us. And that's why in 1 John 1, 9, it says, confess your sins. If, we're, if we confess our sins, then he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so John 13, there's a lot here. After this, Jesus then predicts and reveals his betrayer. 
John 13, if you could jump down to verse 21. It says, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. This is John the Beloved. And Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then, leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. And then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he went out immediately, and it was night. And so the Lord, as you go through the evening, you're just kind of seeing how it went down, you know, and it was in the middle of the meal that he washed their feet. And it was after he washed their feet that his heart started getting heavy and he started saying, hey, one of you guys is going to betray me. You know, and, and you look at the crew and they've been together for three and a half years and, you know, I mean, yeah, they're, they're a ragtag team and yeah, they have their problems, but they seemed loyal. It didn't seem like anybody would do this, especially Judas. He had the money box. You know, we here at the church, and you can talk to any of the guys on staff or any of the pastors, we wouldn't allow just anybody to handle money. We would say, no, these are guys that are trustworthy. These are guys that are proven Judas, no one would ever thought that Judas would do this. But he was about to betray Jesus Christ with a kiss. Think about that. I mean, it's a crazy thing to think about that someone would betray God after all the love that he had shown them. He had just got done washing his feet. And can you imagine how anointed that must have been, you know, for Jesus to wash his feet and the love and, and everything that was there? But 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 when Peter says, um, well, who is it, Lord? And Peter tells John, hey, John, you're his good friend. You know, can you find out who it is? And, you know, so the Lord tells John, it's the one that I'm going to dip the bread in. I'm going to give it to him. He's going to be the one that's going to betray me. And so have you ever, like, you know, been in a dinner? And have you ever, like, given someone some of your food? Have you guys ever done that? You know, you guys don't share? <laughs> I thought you guys were Christians. Anyway, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a, it's a little gesture here. You know, I want you to try this. And you get a little tortilla and put it in whatever, the salsa or something. I mean, there's something about that gesture that is, is kind and, and is loving. And this is from Jesus to Judas. And, it, and my, when I think about this, I think Jesus wasn't just saying, hey, this is going to happen. Jesus is warning the guy. He's warning the guy. And, and, and Judas just would not listen. You know, Jesus extends his olive branch. Jesus extends his love. You know, maybe you're here tonight, and I don't know all of you guys, you know. Hopefully you're all doing good. But maybe there's someone here who's not. And you're playing games with God, and, and God is just reaching out to you. God has been kind to you. And God has been loving to you. 
and you're thinking, I can just keep doing my sin because you love your sin more than you love your Savior. Maybe that's you, and you're thinking, oh, it'll be fine. Judas probably thought he would be fine. But you know what happened after he ate that bread? The devil entered him. And you might think you can handle life, and you can handle setbacks, and you can handle things. You can't handle it if the devil comes inside of you. This is why you need to be saved. Because when you're saved, who lives inside of you? The Lord. And so when you read this right here and how it all went down, and then it was like this final outreach, and Judas just takes the bread. Can you imagine? He just eats it, you know, and then the devil comes in, and then he says he left, and it was night, and it was done for him. He would, he would, he would end up killing himself and going to hell. And so there's a lot that took place that night. Jesus predicts and reveals his betrayer. And then Jesus warns the guys and predicts his disciples' denial. If you go back to Luke chapter 22, in verse 31, Luke chapter 22, in verse 31. It says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you as wheat, uh, for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not utterly fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you without money, bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said nothing. And then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. That's from Isaiah 53. For the things concerning me have an end. And so they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. You know, Jesus was warning all the guys, you know, I, I, especially Peter, though. Peter was the one that was kind of like the target of Satan. Uh, Satan saw the potential in him. And so, you know, that was like the one that, Peter kind of went to God and he said, you know what, I, I'm, I, I, God, we know according to the book of Job, has to even get God's permission to tempt us or to touch us. And so in this case, the devil had been asking for Peter that he may sift him as wheat. He wanted to destroy him. You know, and when I think of the church, I think of how many people have so much potential and the devil sees it. And, and in one sense, he's after you. You know, Peter was the one, the top target amongst the apostles. And so the Lord says, hey, you guys, uh, you got to be careful. The, the, Zechariah says, smite the shepherd, scatter the sheep. This is what's going to happen. And if the Lord told you that, I'm just curious, if the Lord told you, hey, you're, you're going you're gonna to flee uh, tonight from me. You're going to get scared. You're going to run away. What would you say? 
what would you say? You would say, Lord, uh, uh, this is what we should say. Now we're look 2020, right? you know, hindsight. We have this 2020 hindsight. We would say, Lord, please help that help me so that that wouldn't happen in my life. You know, none of us hopefully would say, well, that'll never happen to me. Because if you say that, then you just kind of move to the front of the line. You're next. That's what Peter did. It's not so, Lord, never. These guys, yeah, they might deny you, but I would never deny you. As a matter of fact, I would go to prison for you. I would, you know, lay down my life for you. And the Lord says, listen, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny three times that you even know me. And we know that that can happen, you guys. Um, Peter is a classic example of an individual that was overconfident. And overconfidence led to a life in which he did not pray the way that he should. It led to a life in which he followed Jesus from a distance. And it led ultimately to a life in which he warmed himself by the enemy's fire. And what ended up happening was he denied the Lord, you know? And so denying the Lord, I think that can happen in many different forms. I think like, for example, sometimes, you know, falling into sexual sin. To me, that's like denying the Lord. You know, looking at pornography, that's like denying the Lord. You're going to go out and do drugs. That's like denying the Lord. There's a lot of different ways, I think, that we can do this. When we go into sin with eyes wide open, when we go into sin and we're overconfident, we don't pray, we follow at a distance. And so Peter here, in, you know, listening to Jesus, you know, for us, we got to understand, you guys, how important this is that we make sure that we're right with God. You know, Monday Thursday, it comes to us really from the commandment in John chapter 13. You guys knew that, right? How many of you knew about Monday Thursday? Do you guys know today was Monday Thursday? Where does Monday, the word Monday, come from? Can you think of an English word that kind of similar? Mandate, right? Mandate. And so, so you, so you look at Latin, and these words are connected. Monday mandate is the command and the command of the night there was a lot of commands but the command that stood out is in john 13 in which jesus said a new commandment i give to you that you love one another as i have loved you by this all will know you're my disciples if you love one another and that love comes from us having a love relationship with god you know, when we understand his love for us, when we love him back, and what that means is that we love others. You see, that's what we read in John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. You know, what we find in the Old Testament is that God demanded that men should love their neighbors as themselves, but the new law was that they should love the brethren better as Christ loved them, more than himself, even willing to die for their friends. We're going to see that later in John chapter 15, verse 13. Lenski said this, Jesus had brought a new love into the world, a love that is not only faultless and perfect as love, but one that is intelligently bent on salvation for the one love. Only the disciples know from Jesus what this love is, and only they have enjoyed the experience of his love. By this, all will know you're my disciples if you go to church. Is that what the Bible says? Church is important. Don't get me wrong. We got to be here, you guys. I think that it shows, you know, there's an appetite for God. But that's not really the way that people know you're my disciples. There's a passage in the Bible that is scary. It talks about these guys in the church 
who were always learning, but they were never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Did you know that there's people who know the Bible, who are teachers of the Bible, who um, serve in ministry, and they're not saved? You want to know why? Because the, the evidence of salvation is love. And Jesus said this, a new commandment I give you that you love one another, even as I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? More than himself. Laid down his life for us. John fifteen thirteen. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one life for their friends. I was listening today, uh, Greg Laurie was talking about you know, the whole importance of forgiveness. And uh, see if I can remember. He said something about like the one who says they're sorry first is the most courageous. The one who forgives first is the strongest. And the one who forgets first is the happiest. And I thought, that's true, huh, Lord? Because when we are always remembering those sins, we will never have joy. When we love somebody, we forgive. This is how we can know we're Christians. And this was the mandate. This is Maundy Thursday. This was the command of all this. Everything revolves around love. Later, when the Lord eventually restored Peter, what did the Lord ask Peter? Do you guys remember? Three times, what did he ask him? Do you love me? Right? And if we love God, we'll obey him. We see that in this section. And if we love God, we'll love others. So at, that, at this point, after all these things, that Jesus then institutes communion. And in Luke 22, notice now, if you would, go back to verse 17. It says, Then he took the cup and gave thanks, and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine, until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And what we find here is the Lord institutes communion. Warren Worsby said, The Passover feast opened with a prayer of thanksgiving, followed by the drinking of the first four cups of wine. Okay, so just in case you're here and you're thinking, oh yeah, they got all drunk. No, listen, the wine was diluted with water. It was not intoxicating. Next, they ate the bitter herbs and sang Psalm 113 through 14. And then they drank the second cup of wine and began eating the lamb and the unleavened bread. And after drinking the third cup of wine, they sang Psalm 115 through 18, and then the fourth cup was passed among them. It is likely that between the third and fourth cups of wine is when Jesus instituted communion, this last supper. And he gives the bread, he breaks it, he says, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. And he takes the cup, and he says, this is symbolic of the blood that's going to be shed, the blood for the new covenant. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And, and when I think of communion, uh, again, I always tell you guys, it's something you don't have to do at church. You can do it at home. Um, I think that it's good to do frequently because 
we have a tendency to forget him, you know, for, to forget Jesus. And when you think about it, you know, it's really all about him. When we can come to church service and we can think of individuals that maybe we think they're godly or whatever, you know, we have fun and we get social, get to socialize. There's different things. Maybe you're looking for something and God is just saying, don't forget in the midst of the church that it's all about me. And that's why I like communion. You know, I think that when we look at that and we make him the center of our life, then Jesus does that work and we're going to we're going to find joy. The Bible says in Isaiah 26, verse three, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Maybe you're here tonight and you're struggling, you know, whatever. I don't know. There's so many different reasons that we can struggle. You know, you're not getting what you want when you want it. You know, things are going, you know, bad financially. You know, you got hit with a big tax bill. You know, or maybe, you know, you know, there's a loved one that you're just, you're just dying for them to get saved and it just seems like they're going in the exact opposite direction. You know, I, I don't know what's going on. I know that sometimes there's even things, like I've talked to people and they can't even put their finger on it. They don't know why they're so depressed. They don't know why they're so oppressed. They don't know why they can't sleep. They, they don't know why they're suffering from anxiety. There's a lot of just struggles. And, and you know, my prayer you know, Thursday, Friday, Sunday, just this life that we would get our eyes back on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, because when we do communion, we're reminded of his love. We're reminded of this life. We're reminded of this covenant. And we're reminded of him. Okay, so let me give you guys um, a few things real quick. Uh, I'm not going to turn there. But we're going to see the seventh thing was Jesus parting words in the upper room. So you go home, hopefully tonight you read John 13. And this one right here is in John 14. It's there that he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Let not your heart be troubled. He says that a couple of times as we go through our last uh, Thursday. And, and, and when we're there, Jesus parting words in the upper room, you know, you're going to see how he talks about the miracles that they, God would do through them. Because one of the things you'll see in John 14 and 15 and 16 is this, and I'm going to say it real quick is that God wants to do a work in us, but God also wants to do a work through us. So Jesus parting words in the upper room, so he's still in the upper room, but then as they leave the upper room, now they're walking towards the Garden of Gethsemane, and I'll bet you almost anything there were vines along the way, which leads to number eight, Jesus parting words on the way to the garden. And so they're walking through the garden, and they see the vines, and he says, hey, you know, um, I am the vine. My father is the vine dresser. You're the branches. And what does he go on to say? He says, abide in me and I in you so that you can bear fruit. And if you do bear fruit, I'm going to prune you. And that's kind of tough. But the only reason I'm going to prune you is so that you can bear more fruit. And what's he talking about there? In that context, he's not really talking about moral fruit as much as he's talking about ministry fruit. And, and don't forget that. Don't forget that. You're like, why do I live? Why do I live? Well, you live to glorify God, to enjoy God, but you live to serve God. Where will you serve God? What will your part of the mission be in which God will use your life to bring fruit, your planting seeds, your watering seeds? God gives the increase. People get saved because you're back there doing the PowerPoint, because you're back there doing a live stream, because you're an usher with a friendly face. You know, it's all fruit of us having that heart 
to serve God? You know, where will you serve him? You know, we're going to see that, of course, of course, the Lord is going to say as he's leaving, hey, there's a church to build, and I want to use your life. We see that in John chapter 15 and 16 as Jesus is sharing his parting words on the way to the garden. He's talking about the importance of prayer and talking about the importance of the power and person of the Holy Spirit. He says, it's better that I go away because when I go to the Father, I'm going to send a helper to you. And he's going to bring to remembrance everything that I've told you and he's going to help you. And and it's just so cool to see the way the Lord shares these words with them. The ninth thing is Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. And so I encourage you, when you get an opportunity, go and see what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. And in one sense, the one that kind of stands out most is just that he prayed that they would be united. They would be united. You know, he's talking about his apostles, that they would be one And then he goes on and he prays for us. He says, those who would one day believe because of their words that they would be one. And so, you know, my encouragement to you is to love everybody. Love the non-believer. Love the sinner because that proves you're a Christian. But, But when it comes to the church, make sure that you don't build walls. Make sure that you don't separate and distance yourself from people. God wants us to be one because when we're one we're going to be effective. We're going to actually be used by him to reach others. John chapter 17 is where we have that phrase that we are not of this world. So we're in the world, right? But we're not of the world. And that's a good place to be. The last thing we see in is number 10, going forth to Gethsemane. And there he is. He's praying in the agony in the garden. And so Jesus so he goes to the garden, and one of, that's probably one of my favorite parts about going to Israel is the Garden of Gethsemane. And when, you're, when, when he was there, he told most of the guys, he said, stay right here, and I want to go over there, and I'm going to pray. And then he took Peter, James, and John with him because they were the ones that he was closest to. And then you guys remember what the Bible says? It says he fell on his face, and he began to pray. And the Bible says that he prayed so intensely, there was a hematidrosis, that he sweat blood out of his capillaries. That's how intense the, 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 the prayer was. And when Jesus prayed, he, you know, he was honest. He, he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. You know, there was that part of him. Now, his flesh was not fallen. He was not a fallen man. But he did have that human part of him. Why did he not, in in one sense, at that point, not want to go to the cross? Why? Well, I think the suffering was the start of it. I think the sins he would bear was a part of it. But I think the separation from the Father was the heart of it. And he said, Lord, he said, Father, We've never been separated in all eternity. That's what's going on. And I know when I go to this cross and I take on this sin that you're going to turn your back on me and we will be separated. And so he prayed, "Um, Father, let this cup pass. There's some other way for people to get saved. Let this cup pass. But then he, he prayed the way that we should all pray, but not my will, but thy will be done. 
and he prayed it once, and he prayed it twice, and he prayed it three times. And every time he prayed, you guys remember, he would get up, he would spend some time in prayer, then he'd come in to find his disciples, and what were they doing? Sleeping. You know what's weird is that when I was studying today, I got sleepy, and I thought to myself, I'm going to take a nap. And then I got to this part, and I said, oh my gosh, Lord, I can't, there's no way. <laughs> the Lord said, you better get out there and pray, you know? And a lot of times, that's what's ended up happening. We should be praying. And what are we doing other things? We're watching television, we're doing our hobbies, you know, we're even doing good things, that's fine. But it's not as good as prayer. I will say this, the Lord has really ministered to me in my prayer life, and I'm not arrived or anything, but I do want to share this with you when it comes to prayer. Number one, let me ask you a question. Do you have to pray? You kind of do. God said pray. So if he said, you know, pray, then you have to. But, you know, that kind of led me to the second thing. Um, Do I need to pray? Yeah, you need to pray, huh? Because um, otherwise, you know, you're not going to, I guess, have that fellowship with God and maybe even not get the things that you want. You, you know, you need to pray for your, 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 you know, your marriage, your kids, things like that. So have to pray, need to pray. It's true. It's true. But that doesn't really bring me to the prayer closet, to be honest with you. The, the third thing is I get to pray. I get to pray. Think about that. Man, isn't that a crazy, you guys, that you can talk to God? Doesn't that blow your mind? The Bible says we can come boldly before the throne of grace. The Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn in two from top to bottom. So imagine that. You know, we, we, we have to pray, yes. We, we need to pray, yes. We get to pray, yes. But let me tell you something. When you start praying, when you start really praying, you come to this place where you love to pray. That's where we should be, to where, and I'm not saying that there's not a time to sleep. Don't get me wrong. You know, we need rest. There's nothing wrong with getting rest. But I I will say this, that when you're in a situation like this, and when you're sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and then here the Lord is telling them, you got to pray, you got to pray. The Lord is commanding them to pray. The devil's knocking on the door, just about to come, and these guys are sleeping. I mean, there is a lesson for us. I will say this. Only one life, soon it will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. If you don't win in your prayer life, you will not win. So out of all the things, think about it, of all the things that you're doing in life, that's the one thing the devil will try to win you on every single time. And therefore, it's the one thing that we better make sure we win. I don't know how your prayer life is. I don't know like what it is for you, you know, how long or how it works, things like that. But, you know, I, I do know this, that the Lord will tell you what it is. You know, because after that was all said and done, the last time he finds them, they're all snoring, they got stuff drooling, and they're just like, all like that. The Lord says, get up, time to get up. The devil's here. And then that's when he gets arrested so more than likely now we're talking about he's been praying it's midnight one o'clock in the morning and he just he now he gets arrested and that's when good friday